Um, I've been meaning to um, finish Dry Sauvages. I made a real mistake. I wanted you to experience a whole poem, so we did the little Gideon at our gathering. And I was glad to do that, but it was the last poem. And, and it, it has a much more climactic ending than Dry Sauvages. So we're finishing the quartets in the third poem instead of the fourth, but so let's pick up. Remember that in the four quartets, Eliot is dealing with very basic themes. The most important theme in the four quartets is this still point moment, which he got from Dante. It's this moment of intersection between time and eternity between the time, the present time, and timeless. Um, remember the opening lines to <coughs> Burton Norton were, time present and time past are all eternally present in, we have the Burton Norton die. Time present and time past are all present in time future. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. Time present and time past are both perhaps present in time future, and time future contained in time past. If all time is eternally present, all time is unredeemable. If we live only in time, there's no way for time to be redemptive. We can't redeem ourselves. It, it, it asks for another order. So the opening lines present this problem that we have and um, remember he went into the garden, this mythic sense of the garden, and he's been dealing with these themes of historic moments and places. Each one, each one of the um, quartets takes place in a very specific um, place. And he's dealing with the fundamental elements of air, earth, fire, and water. And in Dry Salvages, he's, he's focusing on water, the river. And if you remember, it began. Um, I do not know much about gods, but I think the river is a strong, strong brown god. And then he goes on to describe how the city and man attempts to master nature and, and makes of the river a means of commerce. Um, and so they forget the gods, the divine. And in, in our uses of science, we, we tend to approach the world as if we can dominate it with our wills. And we've seen, those of you who have been here from the beginning know the danger of that. We learned that from Homer, pre-Christian. In the Odyssey, we saw that when the Phaeacians had this great mastery of nature, and they sailed across the ocean like the thoughts of men. For those of you who are here, it's techne, the word techne, technology. Techne means to make something. When we make things, we usually make something to help master something, to get a hold of it. And the Phaeacians make these ships that are so powerful that they follow the thoughts of men. It's almost like they don't need steers, oarsmen. Are. But when they take Odysseus home, Poseidon, the god of the sea, dumps them out on them. And he never explains why, but if you think about this, the, the reason's clear. If you presume to master nature in the Homeric world, 
You're presuming to master the gods because that's where the gods are. Same thing with Christianity. If we presume to master nature and God made nature indirectly, we're showing a presumption. We're trying to do more than we should. So Eliot's got things like that on his mind. and we, So um, he goes on, remember the river is within us, it's the sea is all about us. He talks about the ocean everywhere, in the bedroom, in the, you know, in commerce. And let me pick up in the middle so we can finish this. Um, at, at the end of section two, he said, time the destroyer is time the preserver. Like the river with its cargo of dead Negroes, cows and chicken coops, the bitter apple, the bite in the apple, and the ragged rock in the restless waters, waves wash over it, fog conceals it. On a halcyon day, it is merely a monument. In navigable weather, it is always a sea mark to lay a course by. But in the somber season, or the sudden fury, is what it always was. Whatever we want to make of it, it has its own being, something we can't forget. Section three. I sometimes wonder if that is what Krishna meant, among other things, or one way of putting the same thing, that the future is a faded song, a royal rose or a lavender spray of wistful regret for those who are not yet here to regret, pressed between the yellow leaves of a book that has never been opened. And the way up is the way down. The way forward is the way back. You cannot face it steadily, but this thing is sure that time is no healer. The patient is no longer here. When the train starts and the passengers are settled to fruit, periodicals and business letters, and those who saw them off have left the platform, their faces relax from grief into relief to the sleepy rhythm of a hundred hours. Fare forward, travelers, not escaping from the past into different lives or into any future. You are not the same people who left that station or who will arrive at any terminus. While the narrowing rails slide together behind you and on the deck of the drumming liner, watching the furrow that widens behind you. You shall not think the past is finished for the future is before us. At nightfall in the rigging and the aerial is a voice descanting, though not to the ear, a murmuring shell of time, and not in any language. Fare forward, you who think that you are voyaging. You are not those who saw the harbor receding or those who will disembark. Here between the hither and the farther shore, while time is withdrawn, consider the future and the past with an equal mind. At the moment which is not of action or inaction, you can receive this. On whatever sphere of being the mind of a man may be intent at the time of death, that is the one action, and the time of death is every moment, which shall fructify in the lives of others, and do not think of the fruit of action. Fare forward, O voyagers, O seamen, you who came to port, and you whose bodies will suffer the trial and judgment of the sea, or whatever event, this is your real destination. So Krishna is when he admonished Arjuna on the field of battle, not farewell, but fare forward, voyagers. 
Lady whose shrine stands on the promontory, pray for all those who are in ships, those whose business has to do with fish, and those concerned with every lawful traffic, and those who conduct them. Repeat a prayer also on behalf of women who have seen their sons or husbands setting forth and not returning. Figlia del tua figlio, Queen of Heaven. Also pray for those who are in ships, ended their voyage on the sand and the sea's lips or in the dark throat which will not reject them, or whenever cannot reach them, the sound of the sea's bell, perpetual Angelus. To communicate with Mars, converse with spirits, to report the behavior of the sea monster, describe the horoscope, horispicate or scry, observe disease in signatures, evoke biography from the wrinkles of the palm, and tragedy from fingers, release omens by sortilage or tea leaves, riddle the inevitable with playing cards, fiddle with pentagrams or barbiturate acids, acids, or dissect the recurrent image into pre-conscious terrors to explore the womb or tomb or dreams. All these are usual pastimes and drugs and features of the press and always will be, some of them especially when there is distress of nations and perplexity, whether on the shores of Asia or in the Edgeware Road. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension, but to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint, no occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death in love, ardor and selflessness and self-surrender. For most of us, there is only the unattended moment, the moment in and out of time, the distraction fit, lost in a shaft of sunlight, the wild time unseen, or the winter lightning, or the waterfall or music heard so deeply that it is not heard at all, but you are the music while the music lasts. These are only hints and guesses, hints followed by guesses, and the rest is prayer, observance, discipline, thought, and action. The hint half-guessed, the gift half-understood, is incarnation. Here the impossible union of spheres of existence is actual. Here the past and future are conquered and reconciled, where action were otherwise movement of that which is only moved and has in it no source of movement. Driven by demonic, thonic powers, and right action is freedom from past and future also. For most of us, this is the aim never here to be realized, who are only undefeated because we've gone on trying. We can we content at the last if our temporal reversion nourish, not too far from the yew tree, the life of significant soil. It's like the soil in the bird metaphor in Christ. In the, if you remember the seeds that get picked and blown away, um, and the yew tree is in, in some ways an image, I think, of the cross. Over and over again, he keeps talking about um, the way in which we are not in time. That so, much, so much of the way we spend our lives are before and after, not in the present. It's only there in that moment where we give up all the 
and uh, um, I don't know the, the, the poorly motivated um, reasons for doing the things that we do that keep us from being in that moment with Christ. That over, I mean, all these things about you know fair forward that um, and we won't look back on the things we've done with any sense of pride in doing them because so much of what we did was for the wrong reasons anyway. Um, so, but to ha apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death and love. That um, we're called to surrender ourselves, to enter that time with Christ, aware that so much of what we do is for the wrong reason. Um, so, here as in the other quartets, he's, 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 he's struggling to give us some sense of this this still point where our hearts quiet because we we are we are involved intimately with the incarnation and the mystery that that left us with it's Christ in time um, it's interesting to read that right now I'm going to ask you a question now and I'm not going to come to it later but it really goes very much to what I'm talking about here and what I think what Elliot's talking about the question I want to ask you guys tonight is this and I really would like it to rest with you, settle with you through the evening until we get to the end, and then I'm going to raise it again. And the question is this. In the Paradiso, which I've loved this time more than any that I've ever read it before, and I owe that thanks to you guys. Usually I teach the Paradiso in two weeks, I think, at UD, which is a long time. I mean, we usually give two, week, two or three weeks to the Inferno, two or three weeks to the, maybe two weeks to each. We've spent a month on the Paradiso. I've never spent a month on the Paradiso in my life. And it was wonderful to be there, truly. I mean, it, spending a month there allowed thoughts to germinate in that quiet that I don't think would have germinated under the pressure of teaching it two weeks. I mean, that's, you know. So it was wonderful because lots of things came to me this time because of you guys. So I'm, real, I'm, getting, I'm just grateful. But, but here, in the two-thirds of the way of the Paradiso, you know by that time that we are in, in a paradisal world. Beatrice anticipated Dante's thoughts. She's in his head. She loves him. As they ascend each of the heaven, her smile is more radiant, more beautiful. Everything he encounters is more radiant, more beautiful. His eyes have to get accustomed. We are leaving this world. When he reaches that point when he's on the back of the universe and Beatrice says, look back, we talked about that. Remember, he looked back at the whole universe and he looked at the center of it and saw this paltry thing called the earth. <laughs> and, I, and I think, I, I hope I said this to you guys, we're so involved immediately with things in front of us and we give them such importance. Whereas if we ever had to step back from them, we would laugh at ourselves. And I hope everybody feels that. that we, we make so much of what we want, and when we don't get it, and the whining and crying, and the anger, and the resentments, and all that stuff, and Dante's in the back of the universe. Remember the, the terms were contemptus mundi and via negativia, the way of negation, the contempt of the world, that Christ asks. We are supposed to renounce the world. When Dante looks back at the world, he sees this paltry thing. Why? Because in the, he's in the midst of all these splendors. I mean, how, how can anybody want to go back to the world having experienced those splendors? I mean, what isn't going to seem like dirt or dust 
to us. Yeah? Is that clear? Yeah. Pretty, yeah. So, and he continues. Then he goes into um, um, Saturn and, and then the fixed stars and the brilliance of the stars. And then he enters the constellations and Gemini. And he's returned to origins. Um, and he, 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 he meets the um, Peter and James and John and undergoes those, those um, um, what's it called, the examination in faith, hope, and charity. He has, he has to not only state them, they keep asking him questions that make clear. He's got to make it clear he has lived them. And I hope that's clear. That's another thing. Because all of us can understand what faith is in our head and still live it poorly. So faith means loving something when you no longer have a reason for, or, or believing it, loving something when you no longer have a reason for loving it, right? That's what Christ did. He didn't come here because we deserved it. <coughs> and hope means hoping for something when you no longer have a reason for hoping. Hope isn't real until things are hopeless. I hope that's clear. We've so secularized those words. We use the word hope all the time. I hope I get a car. I mean, how embarrassing is that? I hope I get all this wealth. Those are supernatural virtues. That's not what they refer to. So Dante has to make it clear that he has lived these things. And we know by this time, he's been in exile. He's lost everything. So he understands the meaning of these far more than people who depend on him all the time. So he's surrounded by these, these extraordinary beauties. Each heaven has its own um, jewel and its own color. So everything, every, it's this multifaceted color show, art show. There's everything there. Um, souls dancing around, lights. And, um, and then he passes to the prima mobile and Beatrice will give him an angelic vision, we'll, on, which inverts what he saw when he looked back at the world. We'll get to that in a second. Then he comes to the Imperium and um, he's almost blinded by the light. It's so great. He sees a river of light coming. That's from God. And Beatrice asks him to drink from it. And he drinks from it and suddenly the river turns into a circumference of light. And the two shorelines turn out to be the whole of the, of the um, celestial rose. I gave you the graph of it, right? You have that. So the whole of the Imperium, the, the rose of Mary and you know, the saints are there, and the order and the beauty of it. Dante sees it. He's, he's, drank, he's drank from that light. And then he'll go on to see the beatific vision. He will, he will look into the mystery of the Trinity. He will, um, Bernard will pray for him that he be given the grace to see into it, and he does. We'll read that tonight. And his last wish, he stares as hard as he can into the Trinity because he wants to see how a Trinity of gods one of them could be conformed to the image of man, the incarnation. Again. How, could, how could our human image be conformed to something divine? It's the great mystery of our faith. No wonder the Jews and the Islams don't believe in Christianity. You have to be an idiot to believe in Christianity. In some sense. Either that or lovers of mystery. Let me hold on to that, lovers of mystery. Um, and at the very end, he sees it. Yeah. Now here's my question. How does Dante go back to the world after that? I'm really serious about this. I'm really I want to really press this on you guys. Alan Tate, whom I love dearly as a critic, he, 
He's one of the most extraordinary critics in the modern world, and the essays he's written to me are, I mean, there's a whole host of, of men who are, and some women, um, who have been so important to me. And I live in a world of critics. I mean, you can't be in literature and not read. And 90% of the critics to me are awful, just awful, awful. The readings of literature are horrible. What they do with literature is, a, is shameful and embarrassing. Alan Tate was a great re reader of literature, a great reader. He loved the divine kind. He converted to Catholicism. I think I gave you some stuff of his earlier, but Aeneas at Washington, we did that when we did the Aeneid. He, his comment on this is, it's tragic. When Dante returns to the world, that's a tragedy. I don't believe it is. I mean, I would disagree with Tate on that. But I want to ask you, you all following where this is going, right? How do you, how, when you've experienced that kind of splendor, do you come back to the world and live? How do you do that? I'm, I don't want to answer it now. I want to come back to that because that's where we're going. And then I have a, one more question to ask you, and I'm not going to wait until we get to the end. <laughs> Veronique is beginning to see through the mischief side of me, I think. <laughs> um, okay, let's start. Let's start. Um, What's the question? The question. The second question? Yeah. I'm not going to tell you till the end. I thought I made that clear. Well, I thought you might do want to ask it right now. No. No. I, sorry. No, that one. I'm sorry. I didn't make that clear. I'm not no. going to. No. I've got to wait till the end to put that one with you, too. too so. Okay. I know. Okay. Um, last week, just quick. This is going to be a very quick overview. We've seen that in the Paradiso, there's nothing that Dante does that he doesn't put in the context of a first cause. And we've talked about that. Yeah, I gave you the example of Bob, Bob's use of the waterfall. Remember, he, he saw that as an image of perpetual motion. When it wasn't, that was an image of secondary causes all interacting to produce this thing that seems like it's in perpetual motion. To get to first causes, you have to go to metaphysics. You have to go outside the physical world. That's, that's why Aristotle wrote a book called The Physics and one called The Metaphysics. Um, you have to get to, to notions like this, act and potency. God is all act. There's no potency in God. I hope that's clear. We are full of potency. Could we learn if there wasn't something potential in us? And could we learn if there wasn't somebody acting to help realize the potential? That's clear enough, right? Yeah. Same thing with love, with anything with us. Human beings, we are, we're creatures made in God's image, but God is all act. We are a combination of form and matter. Form is act, matter is passive. At or act? Act, act. So, um, there's no way to understand action in our world, movement, and that's one of the definitions of nature, is movement, without getting to a first mover, and it's nature. Because otherwise, we, we're in a process of infinite regresses. This move, this, this move, this, this move, this, right? It doesn't explain anything. Ultimately, what was the, what was the first thing that put something in motion? There has to be a first mover who wasn't moved himself. So to get to that, you have to go to metaphysics. Dante has been at pains over and over and over again 
probably four or five times in the Paradiso, he keeps giving us this explanation of first causes so that we can understand the rarity and density of the moon spots, the failure of vows, remember Constance and Picarda. All that goes on has an ultimate explanation. But the point of it all, it seems to me, is Dante showing us really clearly there's nothing that goes on in our world um, that doesn't involve God directly. Yeah? We live with a worldview that denies that absolutely. You know, we're autonomous things floating in space infinitely because we're in a world of matter, according to that view. So in our worldview, we're disconnected, we're autonomous. The, the, preva the prevailing view of the Western mind, and certainly in America, is we are autonomous individuals, isolated, alone, autonomous individuals. We're separated from each other. How can love flourish in that worldview? And how can anything flourish except self-preservation, kill or be killed, do whatever you can to survive? That's the dominant tenor of our modern world. Dante already knew that, but everything he shows us is meant to help us see that there is nothing that goes on. There's nothing, not, not one subject he touches on in the Paradiso that he doesn't relate to a first cause. That's not an accident, because now we're in a world of first causes. We've left the world of Virgil, We'd ever, we've entered into a richer philosophical world. And what we're seeing always is reason is capable of grasping it. Beatrice is always taking something that Virgil would not have understood and explaining it to reason. So we're constantly getting explanations to show how, how, what a rich power, what a rich gift reason is, our intelligence, that we can grasp these things. Um, we see over and over again um, that to describe what's going on in Paradiso, Dante needs a little language because we're, we have um, transcended the categories of time and space as we know them, right? So, for example, when he met the, when he met the eagle in the, in the um, heaven of Jupiter, remember when the eagle came and it spelled out that Latin phrase, love justice, those who rule the earth, something like that? And then it landed on the finished with the M, and the M turned into the image of an eagle. And he said, um, I heard and saw I and we, or I and mine, but what I conceived and understood was we and ours. Because how, how in the world can language, which is sequential in our world, and limited by time and space categories, begin to explain, to describe a world in which those categories are falling away. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And the other thing, interesting thing, remember, the, um, the eagle is, all these stars are moving about, these seem to be stars, and they suddenly form this phrase, and then they break into an image. The other thing not to forget there is, what Dante is showing us also is that there's nothing going on in heaven that doesn't mean. Everything has a meaning. We go through the world, we look at trees, we look at flowers, we look at buildings. Nothing means anything to us, sadly. I mean, one of the purposes of this course, you know, in giving you all the lyrics that I, is to show that things do mean, and, and very often the, the lyric poets have been showing, I mean, my purpose was to show you Christ, that all those lyrics were showing Christ in ways that ordinarily we didn't see him. 
Now, extrapolate, project that forward, extend it forward into heaven. If everything means in this world, and it does, but we don't always see it, you know, I mean, that's one of the values I hope you've seen of poetry, that poetry helps us to see things that we ordinarily don't see. How can it not be even more so in heaven? There's nothing going on in heaven that doesn't mean. Everything before Dante is intelligible. It's rich with meaning, light, love. It's radiating with it. Everything. Um, one of the first questions Dante puts to the eagle is, um, how can those people who don't know Christ be condemned to hell? And how can children who aren't baptized be condemned to hell when it wasn't by virtue of any choice of their own that they're put there? I think it's a question most of us have all the time. Remember, the, the eagle gives an explanation and he tells men to be very wary of trying to penetrate the mind of God. Remember, he gave you the image of, gave us the image of the shoreline that we can see the bottom close to, but if we go out, when you enter into the mind of God, you're entering into something infinite, and our minds can't come close to penetrating that. So he says, be careful, Christians, and the way you use your mind. Now, the sooner, and then he, the, the, the eagle of justice makes it very clear. He said, nobody gets to heaven unbaptized. It sounds sort of shocking, although I, I don't find it shocking in the context of what he's just done because he shows we don't understand a lot about what God does. Then in the very next canto, what does he do? We get, <coughs> we get an up close of the eagle, and the eagle describes the five men in the eyes. And Trajan was the first one, and Riffius was one of the last ones, you remember? Trajan was the emperor of Rome, and Gregory, the bishop of the, the pope then at that time, loved him so much that his prayers brought him back to life. That's the story. And he was baptized. And remember, there's no past and future for God. So we tend to put God in those categories and restrict him. What, what Dante's showing here is the way our limited conceptual framework gets in the way of understanding God. We're in paradise right now, everywhere. And then he introduces us to Riffius. And you remember who Riffius was? Do you? No? Tracy, do you? Do you remember? Not because I read the book, but because of the uh, commentary. It was something to do with, like, I don't know, the Iliad or audience. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Didn't I go over this last week? The remember Riffius, it, it, it occurs, he occurs in, in uh, Virgil in that scene early, I think it's in book two, when um, Aeneas is describing the destruction of Troy to Dido in her court. And he describes that moment when the Trojans put on the Greek armor to disguise themselves because they're getting slaughtered. The Greeks have entered the city. Helen opened the gates when she you know, helped bring in the Trojans and, and with the horse and everything. Um, and then there's this description of, of, the, of the Trojans being discovered with the false armor the disguises on, and they describe them getting killed. And Nias is one of that group, he manages to escape. But one of the soldiers is named Riffius, and Virgil's description of him is, Riffius, the most just of men, 
but the gods thought otherwise. Didn't we do this last week? Yeah. 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 We No, don't look at your notes. Use your memories. Um, Riphius, the most righteous of men, the most just of men, but the gods thought otherwise. What's Dante doing? He's putting in heaven as a way of saying, but the God thought otherwise. Remember? So here, so watch. So in the previous canto, the eagle says, nobody gets to heaven who's unbaptized. Sounds like a cruel thing. And then immediately we're given two examples. Trajan is brought back from the dead. There is no past or future for God. And Riphius was baptized while he was alive. If you, if you go back to, what page is it, Candy? 511. 5.11. Don't go now, but just remember, it's 5.11 in case you want to go back. Look at it, because it describes Riphius coming to the end of his life with this um, righteous zeal um, and God's baptizing him. So, <laughs> what Dante's shown along with the readers is that even though there's this stricture, because why? Because baptism is essential that we enter into the life of Christ. But just because it is doesn't mean it's limited to the formal baptisms that we know in church. Because if these are creatures of God, how is God going to let these you know yeah. souls go? Over and over again, Dante's showing that there is a depth to God's justice that we cannot fathom and to his mercy, which is infinitely greater than anything we know about it. And by the way, I, wanna, I, I cannot let this passage go. Turn to... Sorry. Mm-mm. Turn to Canto 20. God, I love this passage. Just love it. Canto 2512. Page 512. The eagle has just described the amazing depths of God's mercy. Yeah. And on 512, the eagle says, I see that you believe these things are true because I say them like a child would believe, you know, because of the authority of a parent. But you see, you see not how, thus though they are believed, their truth is hid. You do as one who apprehends a thing by name but cannot see its goody. Dante is so clear from St. Thomas that we think we understand so much so often when we don't. We just don't. But it can be understood if we're open and learn that those depths are there for us to penetrate, to enter into. Why else are we doing this work? But cannot see its quiddity unless someone explains it for his sake. Regnum solorum suffers violence gladly from fervent love, from vibrant hope only these powers can defeat God's will. Not in the way one man conquers another, not because somebody overcomes another one by violence, For, um, not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat. God, this is, what's, this is what separates us from Judaism and Islam, fundamentally. Because in us, according to the crucifixion, God allowed himself to be defeated. What Islam is, can even conceive of that? Because they hold up justice as the frame of reference for everything, which means... The whole of their life will be measuring the injustices of people. Where we, our belief is, 
everything we've learned together from this class, purgatory, we can't, their justice and mercy cannot be separated in Christianity. Remember, the hardest thing to do is to pull the, it's easy to have justice, it's easy to have mercy. You can feel sorry for people forever. What good is that going to do them? You can hold them strictly to justice. What good is that going to, bringing the two together is an altogether different thing. For that will wills its own defeat, and so defeated it defeats through its own mercies. So having been defeated, Christ on the cross, it overcomes everything in mercy. Now here's the, the line. This is from Matthew, this phrase. Um, this is from Matthew <coughs> chapter 11, 12. For those, I, I would suggest going home and looking at it tonight. This is in that section where John sends messengers to Christ, asking him if he's the one to come. And Christ says to his messengers, go back and tell John, the lame walk, the blind see, the deaf hear, the dead are risen. And he goes on, and um, I should have brought my Bible, I meant to bring it. Um, Where is it? It's, I'm not going to do it, can you? Let me do this, because we've got stuff to cover still, and I'm always late, as you know. Um, Christ looks at his disciples and says, um, why did you go to the desert? Um, for sackcloth? Everybody in the castle is wearing soft shirts. John was in the desert with sackcloth and eating locusts and honey. Why did you go for food? John was there eating. Um, what he's doing is telling the disciples they wanted a soft, plush life. That John was preparing the way and showing what people would have to do, the hardships they would have to undergo. He was Christ's precursor, so he's in some ways indirectly chiding the disciples, preparing them for what they're going to have to endure. And then he, he, he says, um, there is nobody, how do you, there's, I didn't put it, there's nobody, how do you put it, there's nobody here greater than John the Baptist. None. And, and yet, how do you, there will be, John, John the Baptist will be the least of those in the kingdom. Um, and I should have, I should have, Brought, no, I don't want to do it. What he's what he's doing? Let me. I'm sorry. This is this is. I'm doing this clumsily, but let me let me try my best to get this out. What he's doing is showing that, um, as great as John was in the kingdom, he will be less than Christ, because in the kingdom nobody is greater than Christ because he was God. Now here's what that passage. Here's what Christ says in that context, having said what he did to his disciples and thinking about John and how John prepared the way. From the days of John the Baptist, this is Christ, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent bear it away. Lots of people take that to mean it's violent men who destroy the kingdom. That's, I don't think that's what Christ is saying. What he's saying is, stop and think about it. This is extraordinary. Christ committed a violent act against the kingdom because he did something absolutely contrary to its nature. He took on human form. So how did he conquer? With love. Dante's line, not in the way one man conquers another, for that will wills its own defeat. God allowed himself to be defeated. 
what Islam? Well, I, actually, the way they give their lives is sort of stunning to me, but for a Christian, we believe that any time we go to a cross to offer our lives, it's a grace. I mean, if we're genuinely doing it. For that will was its own defeat, and, and so defeated, crucified, it defeats through its own mercy. It's our forgiveness or God's forgiveness that radically changed the kingdom. How's that for a mystery? Is that clear? Christ took on the second person of the Trinity, took on human form, knowing he would be killed. So the one thing that will overcome the kingdom, the violent take it away, is love. And there's no way God will stand against that. So, you know, in this, right here in the center of the Paradiso are these extraordinary paradoxes that go to the center of our faith. That these mysteries of this relationship between justice and mercy that we've been looking at from the Paradiso, I mean from the Inferno into the Purgatorio now here. Um, every heaven has its own denunciation, and how can it not be? As you get higher, I mean, they're all virtues, remember? Even the lower ones were virtues with deficiencies, but the higher ones were virtues in perfection. Who would know better the faults of our human nature than those who are perfected in them? So what we get in each heaven, every heaven has its own denunciation from the perspective of that particular virtue. So if you look at Mars, it would be fortitude, a lack of fortitude, sun wisdom. Um, Jupiter would be justice. So the denunciations would be failures in justice. Saturn would be, uh, or Venus, but Saturn would be temperance, you know, temperance. It would be excesses in, in temperance, self-indulgence, you know, things like that. So every heaven has its own denunciation and one that's as it is related to the specific virtues as it goes up. And as we go up, we see the denunciations get louder and louder. This goes back to my question. When Dante comes back, is he just going to be this nice guy? What we've been hmm. seeing all the way through heaven, every heaven has its own denunciation. Heaven is really critical of what's going on on earth. When he gets to the very end, the last criticism is of what? St. <laughs> Peter's chair, the church. I mean, we know through the whole, of, I mean, the whole of the comedia is filled with Catholics and popes. The one thing that concerns Dante in the way of sin is the corruption of the church. St. Francis, I mean, sorry, Pope Francis asked it all to read the Divine Comedy. He's asking us to look at our own corruptions and particularly in our church. Indwelling, the church father's name for it is perichoresis. We know, we know um, from what happens with Dante and Beatrice that as they go up, um, they begin to in-see each other. I gave you that sheet, right? You all looked at this. In fact, I know you all studied it. The notes, the adult love on the perichoresis. You all got this, right? They're just examples of the indwelling. It's in othering. Everybody's in-willing. We talk, I, we've talked a little bit about this, yeah? that there's no way to love another person without the spirit of that love entering that person. So that in marital love, adult love, the, the, the sacrifice, the putting away oneself is in order to be um, in other. That the other person indwells so that the man and woman become one. And in heaven, that's true of everybody. 
So in heaven, instead of things being diminished as they're shared, they grow exponentially. It's like the multiplication of the fish. That the more souls enter heaven, the greater the radiance, because the more love. So, and finally, Dante's enlarging sight. Um, he's, the farther he goes, the more he sees, and, and the more he's capable of seeing. Beatrice makes it clear at some time that she can't smile, because if she did, she'd blast his eyes. But at some point, she unveils her smile, and his description is, he'd never seen anything so extraordinary before. She's showing the radiance of God in herself. Um, okay, quick. That was, that was what we were doing last week. I want to take a break and go back to put this in perspective. Um, those of you who have been here from the beginning, God bless your souls. Um, we're in an epic world, and we're about ready to leave it for modernity. It's on the horizon of Shakespeare in the modern novel. Dante's the last great epic. I'm going to argue when we do Moby Dick that Moby Dick is a modern epic, but it's even still, it's, it doesn't have the qualities of the ancient epic. Um, remember that when we began with the Iliad, we saw that the epic poet was always called Avates, a seer. The epic poet was Avates, a seer. He was a prophet. He was the one man that saw things other people didn't. In the classical world and in the medieval world, the poet was the man who sat at the center of a community telling a story that helped reveal the identity of the people to whom he was speaking. He was the spokesman of a community. When the community heard him, they were learning things about their identity as a distinct people. So when Homer told the story of the Iliad and the Odyssey, he, he was revealing the identity of the Greeks to themselves. Hmm? In the Odyssey, we got a glimpse of it because remember, those of you who are here, Odysseus sits down in the middle of the Phaeacian court and tells the story. So the poet was always the bearer of wisdom, not information, not what we get on the internet today, which is awful. It's not information. It's not the same thing. Wisdom has to do with the ancient knowledge, the deepest things that get passed on about our human, our origins, the ultimate meaning of things. The poet was the one who sang the song, who carried on that wisdom for a people. And we know from the Odyssey, just to take one example, um, that when Odysseus tells the story to the Phaeacians, they, they are so enthralled by it that they want to help him. They pile gifts on him, and then they take him home. And what happens? Their ship is destroyed. We need to be careful of listening to prophets. I think it's the <laughs> Remember, I mean, look at the Old Testament. Who wants to listen to a prophet? It's always painful. Prophets cause pain. Wherever they go, they tell the truth, and wounds usually follow. Yeah? I mean, it's the nature. Who... Who of us wants to hear our faults exposed? I mean, most of us have trouble with that. The poet is the one who, who, who speaks the truth about things that most of us don't want to hear, to, to help us to see things we don't want to see. The great epic theme was the founding of the people. Oh, wait, 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 sorry. So, I, I, don't, I think I've mentioned this before. So it's um, since the Renaissance, 
and the breakdown of the medieval Christian worldview, the poet has been increasingly moved off to the margins. I think I've said that before. In Chaucer's time, Chaucer was still speaking in a court. He was sitting in a court telling a story. By the time of Shakespeare, Shakespeare, the poet is in hiding. Imagine Shakespeare giving those stories that are critiquing the Tudor throne. Half of his plays are critiques of kings and um, bad things about kings. Um, the danger that he faced because anytime anybody went against the king in Henry's England, they were usually sent into the tower and killed, executed. So in Shakespeare's time moving forward, the poet has been increasingly moved to the margins. And we saw that, in, and Dan reminded me that that's true of the musicians too, that increasingly poets end up committing suicide. They're awful, they're, it's the voice speaking in the wilderness, people don't hear them. They're alone, they're not at the center of a community, welcomed, they're shunned. And so the, the, um, the suicide rate among artists is much, much greater in our time, and, and musicians too, so. The great epic theme um, was a founding, right? A founding of a people. Every epic is a, is, um, has to do um, with a people struggle with some disorder that they don't see very well. And the poet is the one who shows it. And in showing it, he helps a people recover its proper relationship to the gods, to the divine order. So it's always a violent, there's always a violence going on that, the, that, that um, there's a shakeup. Catastrophic things happen in the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Aeneid, even in the Divine Comedy, when we look at what happens in hell. Um, the, um, the, the epic hero, let's see if I left anything out. Dante, oh yeah, 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 here. Dante repeatedly calls Florence, Egypt, Babylon. That his treatment of Flor the modern commercial regime, and I've argued that that's us, that the modern commercial regime is an image of Egypt, the Jews in the desert held captive, um, Babylon enslaved, that it, it became, that, that the founding really has, it's interesting to think about this in this term, really interesting. Insofar as the epic is about a founding, what's the founding, the refounding? The great struggle, I'm gonna go out on a limb here, the great struggle for Florence and all the modern um, communes that grew out of the Renaissance, Venice, which we look at in Shakespeare, all those um, Italian cities. Remember from our readings that those cities emerged as the product of the struggles of the church to um, separate itself out from the power of the state because it had become so entwined. What happened as a result of um, getting free of that, call it an incestuous relationship. That's the way Dante looks at it in the Purgatory. Remember when he sees the mask, the whore in the, in the chair? Um, the product of that was a new kind of freedom for humans that they hadn't ever had in any other regime that existed before, not in the ancient world, not, not in the medieval feudal world. The people that had attained this extraordinary kind of freedom not under the dominion of the church because the church should not have that political dominion in the world. It's not its place. 
the ultimate place of the church is the salvation of souls, that the king, Christ, given to Caesar, um, that the regimes attain this kind of freedom from the papacy and the emperor, the Holy Roman Empire. But what we see what happens with that freedom. Florence went to hell. There's that past, there's that um, canto with Caccio Guida, when Caccio Guida describes the decline of the Florentine city, that it used to be this heroic noble city. And he says, now look at it. It's decayed and corrupted. And, and I, I, I think I suggested in this class, if we looked at America and compared America today to American oh, yeah. founding, we, we see the same thing. The, the, the founding, the refounding, if the epic is about a refounding, Dante's looking at Florence in this sort of primeval, innocent beginnings and the corruption that it's come to, the softness and the, the immorality and the licentiousness, all that's happened, and in the Commedia has given us a way out. And remember what I said, those of you who are with me, when I talked about the epics as, um, is in the line of that prophetic, the, lit the literature, how it matched up with the, the, the biblical prophetic tradition, that there's this extraordinary similarity going on here. In the biblical tradition, when we get to the disciples, they're all expecting the kingdom to come now, that Christ will be this great leader. And I said then, it, it doesn't happen that way, and it doesn't happen that way in the epics. Not in the Iliad, not in the Odyssey, not in the Aeneid. We don't see a new city. What we see is the disorder has been answered for those who see it, who sees it, the poet, and any readers who've been helped to see that. So the new founding that takes place either takes place in the souls of its readers or it doesn't take place at all because what we've got in its place is a corrupted Egypt or Babylon. Is that clear? Huh? So what Dante's doing is absolutely in line with this tradition. He's doing for his people, for the modern world, what the poet has always done. And the answer to it is in the poem. We either see, remember, well, it goes to the second question. Oh, I'm giving it away. Don't go there. I'm not. The epic hero is always the one who bears the disorders of his people. And that's what I've been saying over and over again. These are our sins. They're our sins. They're ours. Either we, Dante bears them. Either we bear them with him or we miss. And we're back in that world. We're given a way to answer these sins. He helps us to see them, and he offers an answer to them. That's what the epic has been doing. Yeah? Why else are we reading it? So just a quick review. Let me stop. I know this is all review from, it's trying to put the course together. The work that we've been doing from the beginning, but any questions here before we pick up with where we left off? We've, I've got to rush forward to try to throw some light on the last cantos and finish up our work together here. Any questions on any of this? That's a lot, I know, but... Do you think there are any poets today that fill this bill? None? I'm not current. I don't read as much anymore, Candy, but what I do know, from what I do know, there's nobody close to it. 
And, and if you think about mass production today, what it's done, we, I mean, it, there's such a temptation to do cheap stuff to. Like James Patterson's doing. Hmm? Like James Patterson is doing his book stops or whatever. I don't just you know the the masses of people who who easily write today who write easy stories that entertain and or help escape or you know whatever that people call it escapist literature. The temptation to, to make money that way, that, I mean, who's gonna, who's gonna, who, first of all, is gonna go into exile, you know, renounce the world and, um, I, I really, I think I did this, didn't I, before? From the Trojan War to Homer is 400 years. 1200, Homer's writing around 800. From Homer to Virgil is 800 years. Virgil's writing the first century. It took 800, 800 years before somebody could come to terms enough with Homer to, to do what Virgil did, right? Those of you, I hope to God you guys, have, I mean, I wanna, I'm gonna go do the Iliad and the Odyssey and the Aeneid, because I just, it's gotta be done. And then from Virgil to Dante is 1,400 years. How often do epic poets come around? It's such an arduous undertaking. What Dante does is so extraordinary, so extraordinary. And we lose sight of it because we've got this mass production stuff that just that doesn't begin to deal with the depth of what Dante's dealing with, metaphysics and... Um, okay, very... Any other questions or... We've got to... I've got to watch our time. God. I don't know if I... I've, all my life I've wanted to correct this and I don't know that I will before I die. <laughs> it's just, it's looking bleaker and bleaker. <laughs> One quick, quick overview, just to, to, to make you aware of something, and I'll give an example here too. If you read the, if you look at Dante, we're, we're still in a, in a Catholic Christian world before the Reformation. Um, and we've talked about the fall. Remember that for Dante, as a Catholic, um, nature is, God made nothing bad. Everything is good. For Dante, the effects of the fall was a wounding. We call it concupiscence, that we were wounded. There's a wound in our heart. Um, and, and it can be so overpowering that it seems like we're depraved. That if anybody, I mean, I'm trusting all of you have struggled with your sin. Let me talk for myself. There are times when I've struggled with my sin, and it's amazing how overwhelming they are. Just overwhelming to try to, to, for any of us, I'm assuming that I've struggled with you. We know how hard it is to put our sins away. That's why we've got confession. Um, so it can feel like we're depraved. I mean, it's a natural conclusion. That is not the Catholic mindset. It never has been. For the, for the Catholic, <coughs> God made nature good. He made man good. In essence, after the Reformation, the theological understanding by the Reformation thinks is the effects of the fall were complete. That, that man's essence was destroyed. He was ruined. He's depraved. There's a depravity in our souls. And that's, if you look at the literature coming out today, and I, I'm saying this really seriously, if you look at the literature coming out of DVDs, because I watch a lot of DVDs, um, um, stories, I mean it's 90% of the, 75% of the stuff at least coming out of Hollywood is horror stuff. If you look on the shelves, the majority of the stuff hitting films is horror. 
violence and horror. Where does that view come from? That's not our, the two views that, that coincide are the Reformation view, because according to Luther and Calvin, man was depraved in essence. His essence was ruined. Ruined. Man's depraved. Without grace, he can't do anything. You, 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 you ought to be clear now how different that is from Dante, because Aristotle and Plato are in hell, not because they're depraved, they're virtuous. They're in hell because they don't have grace. They're still capable of goodness. They just can't get to heaven. So it's a subtle difference, but it's real. The reality is great. If you combine the Reformation notion of this depravity in man with what enters the, the West in the rationalist thinkers in the Renaissance, Hobbes, who believed that we were at a state of war, the social contract theorists, Hobbes and Locke and Rousseau, all believed that we were at a state of nature. If left at a state of nature, we'd kill each other. The only reason we don't kill each other is we make this agreement, I won't do this to you if you don't do this to me. So the, na the nature of the modern world is a social contract. Think about it, the effect of that in marriages. <coughs> I'll do this with you if you do. It's, it's compromises. And the, the motive of it is, if we don't, we're going to kill each other. That's <laughs> not true. I hope, I hope that's true. You see the implications of that, I hope. Think about the difference between a giving, being giving, being giving, being giving by nature, that is, we're made in the image of God with some wound in it, and living in a state of war. If we're left to ourselves, we're predatory. We will kill each other. That's the modern view. So, in the modern view, nature is not good. And because it's not, we've lost a sense of the analogies, the way of ascent by analogy to God. If you look at Dante, you have to say, that he, and Shakespeare, by the way, will fit in this, you'll see in Shakespeare, same category. That Dante always begins with the ordinary thing, the girl in the street, the girl in the street, that gave him an image of the Trinity. Where did he get that? In some vision he had? No. Was it from a common girl from Beatrice in the street when he saw her? Look at this. Um, look on page 566. I just pulled this out. You, you could find it any page because you guys have been experiencing it all along. 566 at the top. Dante is... Um, has entered the Imperium. He's having his experience of the, of the still point. And this is what's said of him, top of 566. These things are not imperfect in themselves. The defect, rather, lies within your sight, as yet not strong enough to reach such heights. No baby, having slept too long and now awakened late, could rush to turn his face more eagerly to seek its mother's milk. Then I bent down my face to make my eyes more lucid mirrors there within the stream which pours its light for their embitterment. Dante similes, we talked about the epic simile from the beginning, Dante similes always take something very ordinary in nature as a way of explaining something higher. So we can call Dante, what Alan Tate calls him, the poet of the symbolic imagination. He works through analogies from the ordinary things of the world to the higher things the physical to the metaphysical, the ordinary to the spiritual, the higher. 
If you take away nature, you lose, you lose the way of ascent to God. You lose his creation. Um, Dante is the great poet. We can call him the symbolic imagination, the analogical imagination. He's the one who helps us take this step. What's the nature of the journey? Step by step by step by step by step. And all along, whenever he's using similes, they're always relating, always explaining something higher in terms of something familiar so we can grasp it. Um, the vision of the, the angelic um, still point, page 553. Remember, earlier, Beatrice asked him to look back, and he looked back and saw the earth as this paltry thing. Now Dante looks into Beatrice's eyes, and what he sees looking in her eyes is the whole universe inverted, so when he looks at the center of it, he sees a still point. It's moving so fast, it's standing still, and its motion is imparting movement to all the spheres around it. Page 554. Um, if all the universe were ordered in the way these wheels are here, I would be satisfied with what I see. But from our world of sense, we can observe the turning of the spheres are more God's own, the further from its center they revolve. Remember, if we look at it materially, the prima mobile is the, is the first mover. It receives its motion directly from God, and its movement, the prima mobile, the first mover, imparts its motion to the spheres. The farther away you get from God, until you get to the earth, the farther away from that light, its radiance, everything that's intelligible. And remember what the earth is. The sublunar world is the world of death and decay. All the heavens are permanent. Remember, this is the Ptolemaic scheme. This is the inversion of that now. Now, if my wish to know is to be granted here in this wondrous and angelic shrine whose only boundaries are love and light, that he's, now he's learning to see through love, it still has to be made clear to me why the model and the copy are at odds, for on my own I fail to understand. If your weak fingers find it difficult to loosen such a knot, it's not wonder, for it's tight from never being tried. Then she said, if you wish to be satisfied, listen to what I tell you, sharpen your wits on it. The course of the material spheres is wide. Remember the Prima mobile, it's widest, and then it goes down until it narrows at the earth. Or narrow in accord with more or less of virtues that infuse each throughout. The greater goodness makes for greater bliss. A greater bliss calls for a greater body, if it's perfect in all of its parts. Therefore, this sphere which sweeps all the world along with it must correspond to this, the inner ring that loves and knows the most. And so if you will make take your measurement not by the circumference, but by the power inherent in these things that look like rings, you will observe a marvelous congruence of greater power to more, lesser to smaller in every heaven. She will go on down below. I heard them sing Hosanna, choir and choir, to the fixed point that holds each to his ubi, the place they were and will be forever. What he's describing here is from the perspective of a spiritual vision. So when you look at material things in terms of your senses, what you see is the earth at the center and material, the, the earth in their orbit until you get to the prima mobile, what we've been looking at all along. 
What you see if you look at the angelic spirits governing the spheres, that is intellectual beings, not, not humans, not matter, is that you see God at the center, who's moving so fast he's standing still, imparting his motion to the angelic orders, each in his turn. So it's the reverse of what he saw with his senses. What Dante is showing us again is that God is at the center of everything in the universe, with the angelic orders governing. He goes on to, um, to describe the fall of the angels on page 558 and 559. We don't have time to go into it, but it's, it's his treatment of the fall on page 559. And then he answers a question that it was one of the um, commonly debated topics of the scholastics, the medieval schoolmen. How many angels on the point of a needle? Yeah. Is there, I hope everybody's clear in this. I don't, I don't think I did it with this class, but if I didn't, you know that angels don't have bodies. They don't occupy time and space the way we do. And the easiest way to think about this is, imagine each one of you come, here's the head of a needle. Here's a needle, right? Each one of you comes in this room and puts your mind on the head of this needle. As each one of you comes in, more by more, will the head of the needle become more crowded? No. no. Because the intellect is immaterial. It doesn't occupy time and space. When it focuses on it, there is no there, the way we know it in time and space. When you said there earlier is why I was kidding, but there is no there, right? So an infinite number of people come in this room, and that needle will not get any more crowded if you're looking at it from an immaterial perspective. What, what Dante would have called the intelligences, because angels are intelligences. They have no, no bodies. Yeah? So what Dante's showing us is the intersection of these two views, one with the senses, the way we see things bodily, and the other immaterially, the way that we would see with our <coughs> intellects if we could see the angelic orders. If we saw that way, we see God at the center of everything with all the angels revolving around him. It's another way of saying God's at the center of everything. Do we see him? Are we too bound with our senses, too locked up in our bodies to see that there's another way of seeing? On page 560, he makes it clear in another way. Some people argued in the Middle Ages that angels had memory. Here's Dante's answer from the middle of page 560. From the first moment that beings found their bliss within God's face in which, they, which all is revealed, they never turn their eyes away from it. Hence, no new object interrupts their sight, and hence they have no need of memory. If angels are intelligences, except for the fallen ones who turn from God, they never take their mind off God. He's always there, and since he is and God sees everything, why would they have a need for memory? They don't exist in time the way we do. There is no time or future the way it is for them. They see everything through God. Um, On page, I'm going to have to do this quickly now. On page 565, Dante comes into the Imperium and he sees this river of light with these apparent um, banks of flowers on either side, middle of 565. No sooner had these brief assuring words entered my ears than I was full aware my senses now were raised beyond their powers. Something new just happened to him. The power of new sight lit up my eyes so that no light, however bright it were, 
would be too brilliant for my eyes to bear, and I saw light that was a flowing stream blazing in splendid sparks between two banks painted by spring in miracles of color. Out of the stream, the sparks of living light were shooting up and settling on the flowers. They looked like rubies set in rings of gold. I remember, he's, um, this is a moment that corresponds to the earthly paradise. He was asked to drink of the river of Lethe to forget his sins and drink of the river of Unoe to recover a recollection of all of his good deeds. Now he's been asked, Beatrice has said in the previous page, to drink of this light of God. It is the light of God so that with this light he can see the Empyrean because without it there's no way he'd be capable of doing it. So now he sees the stream with these sparks shooting up and down and suddenly this happens. The deep desire burning, urging you to seek the answers to what you've seen, pleases me more the more I see it surge. But you must first drink of these waters here before such thirst as yours is satisfied. So did she speak that sunlight of my eyes, and then she said, the stream, the jewels you see leap in and out, the smiling blooms are all prefigurations of their truth. He saw masks of them because his sight wasn't ready yet to see it. Then he will drink and he sees it. No sooner had the eaves of my eyes drunk within those waters than the river turned from its straight course to a circumference. And then as people, as a masquerade, take off the mask which have until that time been hiding their true selves, so then and there, before my eyes, the sparks and flowers changed into a greater festival. I saw both courts of heaven in their reality. This is the celestial rose. That, um... <coughs> Here's the line that I, I mean, the glory of it is overwhelming. O, o splendid grace of God through which I see the one true kingdom's triumph, grant me now the power to find words for what I saw. Once again, how is he going to find words for something so beyond what words can describe? On page 567, he sees thousands upon thousands. There are more angels than he can, far more than human beings. Over the course of history, there's that many angels. But then he says, and yet by such, this is 567, by such enormous breadth and height, my eyes were not confused. They took in all in number and in quality of bliss. There near and far, nor adds nor takes away, for where God rules directly without agents, the laws of nature do in no way apply. On that sheet I gave you on, with the um, self-reflexive verbs, there's another translation that I think is better. It's on the back page. Um, or I thought it was. Oop. Oh, I didn't. I thought I had this here. I didn't. Oh, holy cow. Here, let me. The, the translation goes. It's like this. The translation is. Um, there neither neither nearness nor distance added or took. Hold on to this. There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God governs immediately, the laws of time and space don't apply. Is that clear? There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. For where God reigns immediately, the laws of time and space don't apply. Is that clear? In heaven, somebody can be a million miles off, a thousand miles off. In earth, if somebody were two blocks off, we we would have trouble identifying them, right? We'd, we'd think it was one person, and it turns out to be... I mean, that's so common. In heaven, there is no time and space as we know it. 
So there is no nearness or distance. Everything's there. So infinitely, no matter how far it goes, that person is fully present to the... I mean, what an extraordinary vision of this sense of freedom and space that goes on in heaven. Isn't that amazing? Or I'm amazed by it. Just, it was one of these... It, it changed my perception of our, my, our faith. I remember when I went to um, St. Peter's and stood out in the square with an enormous space, and I had that mind, I mean, that quote behind me. There neither nearness nor distance added or took away. It's all there in the presence of God. What an extraordinary thing. No poet has ever gotten close to describing these things. One last thing and then we'll stop. Um, 570, when Dante looks at the celestial rose, he says, this is one of his similes, one of these beautiful epic similes. If the barbarians coming from such parts as every day are spanned by Hellas, traveling the sky with her beloved son, when they saw Rome, her mighty monuments, the days of the Lateran built high, outsoared all mortal art, were so struck with amazement, coming to heaven from mortal earth, from man's time to divine eternity, you know, from Florence into this. Any of you seen the movie, The Gladiator? If you remember when the, when the gladiators came to Rome and they stood in the Colosseum, they stood amazed. Ridley, the director of that, it's, it's clear to me he got that from Dante. I mean, imagine if you were a barbarian from the outcast and you suddenly come to Rome and see the Colosseum and what human technology would do. A dumbfounded, just struck dumb. How would you express, I mean, what would you feel when you'd never seen anything like that before in your life? Um, Bernard comes to take um, Beatrice's place. At this point, Dante is so overwhelmed by the spectacle of the rose that he can't speak. This is the moment that corresponds to the moment of Virgil. He turns to Beatrice for assurance she's gone. 572. Through your own power, through your own excellence, I recognize the grace and the effect of all those things I've seen with my eyes. From bondage into freedom, you led me by all those paths, by using all these means which were within the limits of your power. Beatrice has brought him home. If you remember the epic tradition, the great theme of the Iliad was kleos, honor, human dignity, that men were treating men like objects. They were treating men or women as objects. That what happened with Achilles reveal a new sense of honor to the human soul. What happens with Achilles in the Odyssey, the great theme of, the, of Achilles is nostos, the homecoming. The word nostos from Greek, it's from that word that we get nostalgia, a longing for the past. The great theme of the Odyssey is going home. The great theme of the Aeneid is pietas, the founding of Rome, a whole new spirit in bringing that city into being because it was the one city that would make it possible for all human beings, no matter what their race, no matter what their race, that they had something in common that was more important than their racial differences. And those of you who are here, remember, the cost of that was nothing but violence. And we know that today. People don't want to give up their race. This racial identity separates people. Rome was that city in which all people come together. It was the undying, the, the eternal city. So what do we have here? Beatrice bringing Dante 
home. This is what he longed for in that moment when he stood in the front of the mountain, looked up the hill, wanted to go to that sun. Now he's here, he's home. And what we see in this moment is that, that same recovery of this extraordinary dignity that human beings have and the sense of piety, this oneness with, he's there in the Imperium with all people. So in this moment, um, and it's interesting, he, um, he gives the image of, um, on page 572, the other image besides the barbarian one, as one comes, bottom of 572, as one comes from someplace like Croatia to gaze on our Veronica, so long crave for, he now cannot look long enough and while it's displayed, he says and thought, Oh, Jesus Christ, my Lord, the one true God, is this what your face truly looked like then? Looking at the veil of Veronica, because remember her veil was supposed to take the imprint. What's happening right now is that Dante's beginning to see Christ in other people. Veronica's veil is a signal. He sees it in Bernard, saw it in um, 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 Beatrice, and, and even more, 577. This is just before Bernard is going to make his last prayer to help ask that Dante be given the help to look into the Trinity. On page 577, now look at that face which resembles Christ the most, for only in its radiance will you be made ready to look at Christ. He cannot look in Christ until he looks on this face. Whose face is this? Mary's. How can it not be? The closer we, the closer we go back to our origins, the better we become as human beings, the more we look like Christ. The Imago Christiani, remember I gave you that phrase? We're all made in the image of God. Every one of us has within us the Imago Christiani, the image of Christ. As we, as we move towards our completion, hopefully, if we can perfect ourselves, he will be visible in each. Look at it, everybody's so different, right? We're all, I mean, facially, we're all so different. But in some mysterious way, Christ is gonna be visible in every human face in returning to him. So Bernard here on page 580 makes his prayer. He prays to Mary to make it possible that Dante see into the Trinity. The, I quoted this passage earlier, I read it 583. This is where he sees the unity in all creation. It's an extraordinary moment. He sees, he looks into God and he sees the unity of everything, that all things are unified in God and he gives this image of Neptune when Neptune looks at the ship of the Argos that a god is in awe because of what man is allowed to do. I know I saw the universe of form, the fusion of all things, for I can feel why speaking now my heart leap up in joy. When instant brings me more forgetfulness than five and twenty centuries brought the quest that stunned Neptune when he saw Argos keel. And one is so transformed within that light that it would be impossible to think of ever turning one's eyes from it. How does he go back to the world? He's just seen it. Because the good which is the goal, the goal of will is all collected there and outside it, all is defective that is perfect there. Last page, 584. Now he looks into the Trinity. How weak my words fall short of my conception, which is itself so far from what I saw that weak is much too weak a word to use. O light eternal fixed in self alone, known only to yourself, and knowing self you love and glow, knowing and being known. That circling which, as I conceived it, shone in you as your own first reflected light, when I had looked deep into it a while. 
seemed in itself and in its own self-color to be depicted with man's very image. My eyes were totally absorbed in it. As the geometer who tries so hard to square the circle but cannot discover, think as he may, the principle involved, so did I strive with this new mystery. Now, he's just looked at the three circles. Two of them seem to overlap, to merge in color. One of them stands off, even though they're all interpenetrating. That's the image of the Trinity. But he's struggling to see how one of them could be conformed to man's image, that mystery. So did I strive with this new mystery? I yearn to know how could, how could our image fit into that circle, how it could conform. But my own wings could not take me so high that a great flash of understanding struck my mind and suddenly its wish was granted. At this point, power failed high fantasy, but like a wheel in perfect balance turning, I felt my will and my desire impelled by the love that moves the sun and the other stars. He will return to earth. Remember, every canticle, the inferno, the purgatorio now, ends with that same phrase, and love that turns. He's always out of hell, return to the stars, the, the perfect balance in motion. The end of the purgatorio, by the love that returned, or the, the move of the star, and, and now here. So he's returned to that order of God's creation, but he comes back to write this book. Now here's my, I just, I want to take two minutes because we're already late and we have to leave, but I want to take a minute here pretty seriously. I'm putting this to you guys. What does Dante do? He's just seen Paul saw it, third heaven. Dante's made it clearer than Paul ever did. He's shown us the splendor of heaven. He's looked at the radiance of everything. He's been next to everybody. There's an interfusing that's gone on with him. He's seen into the triune unity and he's re revealed this mystery of Christ, even though he you know, you won't be able to hold on to it because it's too profound. How does he come back and live in the world? Well, I wonder if it's not because he has become one with God, or divine unity. And being one with God, he has the capacity, you know, and one in, in the Trinity, I, I guess you could say, has this divine love which puts him into the divine will and the divine will being to come back and write this for all of us. Okay. <laughs> Good. Just two minutes, Rosie. I'm so sorry. We're, this is our last class. Okay. I loved everything. Please make sure everybody goes up that way. And Which way? The way you came in. The way in. we came in by your Not office? This way. And for sure. How many people you've got? So you see everybody go up? And I'll, I will be okay. sure. I'll be sure. Last week they armed the building. I will be sure. Here. I will be sure. So we got to make sure that everybody goes out. I will be sure. You have my word. The part of me that is a policeman, a bad guy, will... Here, quick. Because we got to... But any other thoughts? Because he has a mission, an assignment. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's a good point. Over and over again, it's made clear. Dante knows coming back, he's got, he's got a calling. He has to do this. Yeah. Yeah. What else? That's the will of God. Yeah. What else? Alan Tate said it was tragic. Right? And I, for me, I understand why somebody would say that. If you could imagine, could you imagine seeing this and coming back to the world? Remember when he, when he was in the back of the universe looking at the earth, it was paltry. How does somebody leave that splendor and come back to these slums? 
<laughs> our beautiful homes and for, for God. You do it for God. Yeah. When Suzanne, I asked Suzanne a couple of nights ago, before Friday, before, and I said, because we sat down at the table and I put the question, her response was, he came back with a great, how do you say it, Doc? He came back with a greater sense of gratitude and what? Are you there? Would you come out here? No, come out here. No, we're going to fight that here. Come out here. Come out here, please. What did you say? I said with a great sense of gratitude and love. And love, yeah. That's right. That's right. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> you got to look. Greater, I know. <laughs> Wait till I get home. Greater sense of gratitude. What, here, here, here's what I want to say. Anybody else before? Well, he was saved. Say? He was saved in a way. I mean, he started at, mid, you know, at this midpoint of his life. <laughs> like he was upset. Like what? Say it again. This desire to go to the mountain. Is that what you're talking about? Yeah. Yeah. And, but and so now he's, it's like a conversion. Not a conversion because he was already, but like a. A what? Yeah. A revelation. I'm going to say this that he came back. I really believe that Doc's in mean, response to and what you said too, too that. Um, he could not have come back without a greater sense of love and gratitude because he's had this gift. I want to add to that, he could not have come back and lived in the world without a greater sense of sorrow. Mm. Mm. And, and, and that's another way of saying, how, I mean, remember Christ with John on his breast crying. And that moment when Christ is looking down at Jerusalem and weeping because he knows what's going to happen to Jerusalem. Yeah. And he's crying tears in the garden. So, I mean, blood, I mean, that's the way it's described. So, my, that, I think that's why Alan Tate said tragic. But when he comes back, he's, he's going to have an infinite sense of joy, and that joy and his declarative vision is going to make for much greater sorrows. Whatever sorrows he felt before, and I'm assuming they would have been deep, are only going to be deepened. And in that sense, he's going to be more like Christ, exactly that way. Yeah? yeah? Okay, here's my question to you. I'm going to ask and then I'm going to shoo you out. <laughs> so now, if, if that's what happens to Dante when he comes back, you all know where I'm going? Yeah. Where are we going? What happens to us? What, hap yeah. what happens to us when we go back? We've, I, I don't want to, we've read the Divine Comedy. Uh, we would have read it even if Pope Francis had a mass. This is Dante coming back. We've read it. Now, what do we do? Let me leave it, okay? <laughs> See you guys, I hope, in the fall. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you. I had to tell you what I heard on the radio about Wait, everybody, be sure you go past the office or I'll be in real trouble. <laughs> Sorry. He's writing these books that are really, really short.
out, and they're very quick reads. And the interviewer said, so well, don't you think with the way people are so busy nowadays and they're rushing here and they're rushing there and they're distracted that this is just going to promote that? And he said, oh, no, that's just what they need. It fits right into their lifestyle. <laughs> Isn't that funny? I'm like, ah. It's sad. Yeah. It is, but thank you so much. No, thank you, Candy. Okay. Thank you, Suzanne. Yes. Thank you so much. I miss a little bit, but not too much. Somebody left their jacket. No, it's Rob's. Oh, okay. <laughs> okay. Bye. Bye. Have a good summer. Thank you. You too. too.